Well, we come to our second week in our plot series, uh, the chapter of God's story and also of our story. Uh, And this week is the hardest chapter to talk about, and we're going to talk about the fall. Uh, But even in the fall, that there is goodness still to be seen. And so if you got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 18 uh, through 25, not through 32. But I would encourage you when you get home to read through uh, the remainder of this chapter. Um, it's an extremely clear uh, and direct chapter with a lot of um, importance for even us today, but I'm going to be reading through verse 25 uh, this morning. Hear God's word from Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. So I pray by it this morning that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, but also that you would comfort us and encourage us. Would your son be our teacher this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you know this because Allison and I talk about it all the time, but we became aunt and uncle to two little nieces. One's two, uh, one's about to turn two, one's one and a half, uh, about uh, two years ago. And it's been wild for us to watch them uh, grow up so quickly. And they actually made their first trip to Thomasville here a few weeks ago for my ordination weekend. And I got to spend some time with them. I hadn't in a little bit, and it was just so wild how quickly uh, they're growing up. And Lois, who's the older one, Uh, Lois has gotten into the drawing and the art stage where she just loves to draw. And so uh, the morning of my ordination service, I actually got to sit down with her and I got to draw with her a little bit. And we got to, she got to pick out the color and she would scribble over the page. And then she really loves to have her hand traced. So we got to do some little hand tracing and she tried to trace mine and I would trace hers. Uh, And it was awesome. So sweet. Uh, But this question popped in my head as I was drawing with my almost two-year-old niece, Lois. Is Lois's art good? Is it good? And so I ask you this question this morning. If a one-year-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old walks up to you with a picture that they really want to put on the fridge, uh, do you say that that picture is good? Some of you are answering yes. Some of you are like, I don't know. Well, you can go a couple different ways with that question, can't you? Well, you can go, well, is this... Picasso level good? Well, no, it's just a bunch of squiggly lines that actually has no meaning whatsoever. They just drew it out on the page. So no, it's not Picasso good. 
But for them, is it good? Well, absolutely. Because it shows that, hey, their mind is working. Their imagination is soaring. They're wanting to be creative. They have a little bit of spunk and they want to make something for you. And this is the best that they can do in those circumstances. So in that case, sure, of course their art is good. And many parents kind of get what I'm saying here, because when you ask them a question about their kid's art, uh, they take a very helpful approach. And rather than being what if parents, they are what is parents. And what do I mean by that? Well, that means just simply instead of constantly critiquing, constantly judging them against an impossible standard. Example would be, well, my kids art, you know, it's not Picasso level, or, you know, they could have added a few more colors, or they could have added, you know, something that actually resembles something in the real world. They could have added more texture to, you know, talking about a two-year-old. Rather, they're simply content with what is, right? They know. No parent, I think, would be under the delusion that this is the greatest thing they've ever seen. But knowing who made it, knowing what it was for, knowing where they are in their course of development, of course, it's good. They're going to celebrate and they're going to delight in it. And as we come to the second part of our plot series, uh, we come to Romans 1. And last week we talked about creation and this idea that creation was created very good with beauty to see and enjoy. But we come today and we learn that all of creation, even though it was created very good, has been fallen, corrupted, and overrun by sin. Everything has fallen from the perfection that God intended of it, and it's in need of redemption. As Romans 8, later in this letter, would say, all of creation is groaning. It's groaning, awaiting redemption. But that leaves us in a really interesting place. If creation is fallen and broken, is, it, is there still goodness to be found in it. See, God created all things good, but did sin take it all away? Did sin take it all away? And there's been two responses in history to this question. And the first one, and I've found neither of these responses convincing, but the first response is to say that no, sin has taken all of the goodness out of the physical world. And so the job of the Christian, the job of the human is to get away from the physical world and just focus solely on the spiritual world, right? That's what we call Gnosticism, this idea that everything created is actually lesser and evil because of what sin has done to it. And so we just need to focus on the spiritual things because those are the good things. But then you have the flip side where it's like, actually there's abundant goodness. There's so much goodness in the earthly, earthly world. And actually, you know what? The heavenly life that doesn't really exist. And that's what we call hedonism and nihilism. Basically meaning this, that you know what? You need to eat, you need to drink, you need to enjoy this life now because there is absolutely nothing beyond the grave. So if you don't enjoy what's seemingly good right now, then you're never gonna get to enjoy anything good. But both of those options feel unfulfilling, don't they? Right, either this world means absolutely nothing and we just need to abstain and stay away from it to keep ourselves pure and focused on the spiritual. Or heavenly life doesn't exist. So all there is, is what's here in this world. And as we've seen time and time again, those things don't ultimately satisfy. 
And so as we come to Romans 1, uh, we're going to see that Paul dives into the realities of sin. And maybe more than any other chapter, it gives the grim details and the fallen nature of humanity and what it leads us to do. And what I want us to see this morning, what I want us to make note of, is that Paul is mentioning a couple missteps. A couple missteps on our part. And these missteps have led sin to blind us. Blind us, and it leads us further down this rabbit hole of darkness and brokenness. And the reason Paul starts his letter this way is because Paul's theology is one of grand resurrection. Meaning that God created all things good, Sin broke it, but God is in the process of redeeming and restoring everything, right? That there is still goodness to be found and to be worked towards, even as we live in a broken and sinful world. So my question for us this morning is how can we see God's goodness? How can we see that goodness still, even in the midst of a sinful and fallen world? And I think the answer is kind of like how you treat a bit of kid's art. We need to become what is people and not what if people. And we do that in a few ways. And uh, we're going to talk about two of those specifically. One, we need to change the standard. And two, we need to reorder our loves. Change the standard and reorder our loves. So what does it mean by change the standard? Well, right away, if you look at verse 19, you see the issue that Paul is trying to address, right? Sin has led us to be blind from the truth. So let us be blind from the truth and the goodness of God, which is right in front of us, right? God has clearly revealed himself to us and we've completely missed it. We've missed it. Verse 20 goes on to say that God's attributes, his power, his nature, they're all made known, not just by scripture, but by the creation itself, right? It's impossible to look at the order of the universe, It's impossible to look at the fact that morality, for the most part, lines up across people and nations groups, and it's an intuitive morality. It's impossible to look at the beauty that exists all around us that we didn't create and say, you know what? God doesn't exist. And what part of this passage is trying to do for us is confirm to us that goodness is not subjective. Goodness is not subjective. That there is indeed a standard for what is good and how we should understand it. And that standard is the creator himself. See, what the creator deems good is good, and what the creator deems bad is bad. And so goodness is not something we get to decide on our own, according to Paul, but it is something that has actually been revealed to us. And as Romans 1 goes on, that's the major issue, right? Creation is speaking to the goodness, which is defined by God himself, but the actual creation believes that goodness is not objective, but subjective. That goodness is something we find, that goodness is something that we create, that goodness is something that we get to decide. And when we live like that as the creation, we are no longer content see the goodness as God says it is, but we'll always be asking this question, what if? Right? What if there's more than God says there is? Right? What if God has hidden actual good things away from us? What if God 
doesn't truly love us and just wants to restrict us. And you know, what if we could do a better job of defining our own meaning and purpose, right? That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? When Eve took the fruit, she began to ask those what if questions, right? What if God is hiding something from me? What if I got to know the things that God knows? What if God is lying to me and what the serpent is saying is actually true? And all of those what if questions lead her to take the fruit and eat and give some to her husband and he ate. And rather than trusting in what was, that God's way would lead to true abundant life, right? Adam and Eve fall into sin because they are infatuated with the question, what if? See, part of the reason why we fail to see the goodness of God in this world is that we are constantly trying to define goodness for ourselves. But when we live like that, we actually dig ourselves deeper and deeper into the hole. Uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote a book and he calls it The God Who Is There. Uh, and the main thesis of that book is he's noting that when we abandon God's truth, when we abandon God's goodness, when we abandon God as the standard for what good is, uh, we fall below what he calls the line of despair. And that's a pretty dramatic uh, title, but it makes sense because he writes at one point, when we were believers, or 20 years ago, whether you were a believer or not, when I said, hey, go be a good boy, go be a good girl, regardless of whether you were a believer or not, most people had the same definition of what that meant. We knew how to move forward. We knew how to function well as a society. We were content with what was. If you were a good boy, it meant this. If you were a good girl, it meant this. But as the enlightenment took hold, as people started going, you know what? Maybe we can define what's good without God, without religion. You know, maybe we can construct a whole life and we never need this God figure, right? All of a sudden, what he notes is that people lost a sense of goodness and it led them to despair. You see, if there's no absolute goodness to compare yourself to, there is no absolute goodness to compare to you. How could we ever be sure that you are building your life on something that is actually good, right? And so Schaefer argues that when we abandon the standard, we abandon the enjoyment and the security of God's good world. We lost the what is revealed by God and we settled for asking the question, what if over and over and over again? And we see this all the time right? This week is an election week. And what do we do during elections? Well, we preach about what is good for our nation. And we do this every four years, and then we'll do it again four years from now, because this cycle apparently didn't work, because what was preached as good is actually not good. And so we're going to need to have another election, or we're going to need to do the whole thing over again. You watch social media, you watch TV, you watch sports, and you see the trends rise and fall, the next latest and greatest thing, what is considered good, right? Goodness has just become, without the standard, just what the most people are doing, right? But eventually it's gonna fade, it's gonna fall, and something new will take its place. Goodness is just a moving target. And so part of the consequence of the fall is chaos, right? Goodness is veiled to us. And instead, what it leads us to do is go on this never-ending goose chase of trying to satisfy ourselves and to make meaning of all of this. And what God is reminding us here in Romans 1 is that creation is groaning. 
it's speaking of goodness. God has revealed it to us and it's found in his word, right? He created all things good and it is just wise for us to follow in his way. So if we wanna break the what ifs of defining good on our own, it is wise for us to trust in the what is of God's word. We need to change the standard. But second, we need to reorder our loves. We need to reorder our loves. And the rest of this chapter, a lot of what I didn't read, uh, deals primarily with what it looks like in real life for people to play the what if game over and over again. And in this chapter specifically, what you see is if I were to keep reading, uh, you see the perversion of sexuality, right? If God is no longer the standard, then humankind will replace that standard with a new one and then a new one and then a new one, right? And what it ultimately leads to is that people are worshiping created things over the creator, And I'm not gonna comment specifically on this passage, mostly because I believe that if you go read it, it's a very clear uh, position that scripture takes. But I do wanna ask the question because I believe it's passages like this and it's teachings over the course of church history uh, that can leave us deflated on the other end of the spectrum, right? If sin has messed everything up, if sin has messed everything up to the point where there's unnatural uh, marital benefits that are happening and there's abuse that's happening. Is there anything good about creation at all still to enjoy? Is there anything worth enjoying? Because when I was growing up and I was in Sunday school, uh, it was traditional that we would eventually get to talking about idolatry. And we would talk about all the things we love. And the Sunday school teacher would go, okay, what do you love? And, you know, I would answer, well, I love Florida football. And it was pretty, you know, normal that then my teacher would go, well, too much of Florida football is an idol. You know, as you get older, you know, you start to love more things. You start to experience more of what life offers. But the same thing would kind of happen as you would come back into Sunday school and they would go, well, you know, I love my job. I feel a lot of purpose with what I'm doing. And the same answer, well, too much of it, it's an idol. And that's not, tr- that's not wrong. Those things can be an idol, But what it's saying, without directly saying it, is what is good, what the church in the past has always defined as good, is very narrow. That good is only really defined to spiritual things. Like good things are worship and prayer and giving and serving, right? Those are good works and the rest of the things in this world can be really dangerous, that you really have to watch yourself, that God might be so frustrated that you spend so much time with this other stuff that you ignore him and the actual good works of prayer, worship, fasting service. Uh, Martin Luther actually recognized this trend in the church back in 1517 when he says this. If you ask further whether they count it also a good work when they work at their trade, walk, stand, eat, drink, sleep, and do all the kinds of works for the nourishment of the body or the common welfare, and whether they believe that God takes pleasure in them because of such works, you will find that they say no, and that they define good works so narrowly that they are made to consist of only praying in church, fasting, and giving. Other works they consider to be in vain and think that God cares nothing for them. 
See, we fall into this view that good is actually narrow and that it only consists of spiritual church practice. But what about the rest of our lives? What about the six days that you're not in this building, all of the things you enjoy, all of the work that we do? Is that good? And the answer I think scripture is saying is, of course it is. Because what Romans 1 is not trying to do in pointing out the perversions of what happens specifically with sexuality given to men and women, it's trying to say that it's bad. Because of sin, now it's bad. You shouldn't do it. That's not what the scripture is trying to do. But rather than declaring it bad, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to reorient its direction. He's trying to reorient its direction. You see, sex is good in God's world, in God's way. But we as the creatures have taken it in the wrong direction. But when practiced in the right way, according to God's way, it's still good. It still can lead to flourishing life. And guess what? That opens up the world for us, doesn't it? If you go back to the Ecclesiastes passage, I hope you caught what John read, right? God tells us to eat, drink, and enjoy our spouse. Why? Because it's a gift of God. Because it's a gift of God. He wants us to delight in the goodness of creation, right? He wants us to delight in that hike. He wants us to delight on the beach. He wants us to delight on a Florida wind in November, even though those don't come around very often, (laughs) right? He wants us to delight in the things we enjoy because he's given us them as a gift, right? He wants us to find purpose and value in our work. Why? Because we're working unto God's good world, We're working to redeem and restore all things with him. But what Romans 1 reminds us is that good creation can be misdirected. That what happened was that God didn't create good and bad things, the bad things we stay away from and the good things we come to, but we took good things and we directed them to sinful ends. And so God's saying, rather than just reject everything, everything that culture has taken hostage, everything that culture has taken away and said that this is bad, Rather, God wants us to just reorder our loves. He wants us to reorder our loves, to put him as the standard, to put him at the center. And then you are free to love all things in relation to God. But it's when the created thing goes before the creator, that's when the issue starts. G.K. Chesterton uh, put it this way. And the more I considered Christianity the more I found that while it established a rule and an order, it gave us rules that we should follow. The chief aim of that order was actually to let good things run wild, to let good things run wild. See, when we are willing to change the standard, to say, you know what, we're not gonna define goodness for ourselves anymore, but we're gonna let scripture, we're gonna let God's word define what is good, then actually that frees us because then we can enjoy the goodness of creation with God at the center. It was when we took God out of the center and we made the created thing try to fill our lives with meaning and purpose. That's when we fell short. So when we put God at the center and we reorder what we love, in regards to that standard, all of a sudden, guess what you're gonna see? You're gonna see God's goodness. You're gonna see God's blessing. You're gonna see the way that God loves you, even in the midst of a broken and sinful world where things are not the way they're meant to be. 
but God is working to redeem and restore all things, and there is still goodness for us to enjoy, right? We don't have to be totally negative about where the world is going, but we can trust and hope that God loves us and blesses us with goodness to enjoy. And that's why we come to this table, right? We come to this table because this is God's first act, that God said, I loved my creation so much that I wasn't just gonna blow it up all and restart, but I was gonna work to redeem. I was gonna work to restore. And so he came in the form of Jesus and he died the death that we deserve so that we might have life, that we might start to see again the goodness of what God intends for us. Let's pray. Lord, bless this time. Bless the bread and the cup. And as we remember your great love and sacrifice for us. Amen.